Okay, are we, are we ready? Okay. So just a, a little um, note before I begin. Um, starting this week, we began to consider um, how to apply the things that we've been talking about so far, just what they begin to look like as we live them out. So this morning, I'm doing something a little different. I'm just going to go back over what we've talked about, and we're going to just kind of look at the big picture truths that we've been studying so that we have those in mind as we begin to apply these um, other things that we're studying. So let me pray for us, and we'll begin. Father, thank you um, for this beautiful part of scripture. Thank you for the struggles that it causes in our hearts. Thank you for the beauty that it brings forward. Thank you for the hope that is written here. Father, we thank you for Jesus, our lawgiver, and we thank you that he is our lawkeeper. And we give you praise in his name, in Christ's name. Amen. Okay. When Jesus ascended that small little mountain so long ago and began to speak, there was no thunder, no lightning. There was no thick cloud around the mount. There was no trumpet blast. There was no warning not to come near, no warning not to touch. There was that day no trembling with fear among the people. There were probably a variety of things going on in the hearts of people. Some were curious. Some were just interested. Some probably had confusion about who he was and what he was saying. In some, there must have been excitement. In others, there was disdain and confusion and contempt. Perhaps in others, there was longing. And yes, even the beginnings of the stirring of a love of what he had to say. But regardless of the response that day, what Jesus spoke to that unlikely group of men that had gathered and the crowds that formed around them was a moment of eternal significance. It seems every week as we study this portion of scripture, we have been taken deeper and deeper into the glory of grace which was spoken from that mount. The depth of what was revealed there was surely worthy of a trumpet blast, but of course there was none. What Jesus said was indeed earth-shattering. However, there was no creational reaction to it. No, the reaction was meant to take place in the recesses of the hearts of the men and women that were there. And that continues to be the case. There he was, King of Kings and Lord of Lords, as yet truly unknown to those gathered. And he was sitting in the midst of the people, teaching them, perhaps speaking quietly, And yet he was revealing the deepest truths of their hearts. And what he said then is still revealing the deepest truths of our hearts and exploring the depths of our sin. What happened that day was an unveiling. Things hidden revealed. Truths unleashed. The sermon revealed then and continues to reveal what true righteousness looks like. But it was at that time in a light so brilliant, and it continues to be, that one cannot recognize it without a new heart. 
Yes, we are discovering that the sermon also reveals the wretchedness of our deceitful hearts and the inability of, for us to do anything about it in and of ourselves. At the same time, the sermon sings the wonder of the gospel. It's there every week, week after week. The more we study it, the more undone we are, and yet the more hope we have. We see the depth of our sin and the expanse of God's love and mercy. To me, it's been a wonderful journey in these seven weeks. I have studied the sermon before, but never in this depth. But perhaps the big difference is with my heart, because I do find there's a longing in my heart to grasp what is waiting to be mined in these three chapters. And I think something else has happened in me is that I want to know how to be more of who I am meant to be. So as we are beginning our seventh week, and it seems to have gone very quickly, we have many things to learn. We have learned many things. The sermon, though relatively short, is actually a picture of who we are to be if we belong to Christ. I suppose that should indeed stir our interest. In reality, it should do so much more than that, and hopefully it is, and hopefully it will continue to do so. The Beatitudes are the central part of what the sermon is all about. They tell us what blessings God gives to those in whom he is working an astonishing work of grace. And the blessings given are not earned, but they're gifts. And so we go back this morning as we try to bring these things together. We go back to the Beatitudes where we began. And the reason is, I think this is always the place where we begin. This is always the place where we should return to as we dig deeper into the sermon. We have to rehearse what happens here in the Beatitudes because it is our home, so to speak. And I encourage you to make it your home as you go through the sermon. In our study, we divided the Beatitudes into two different parts, which makes sense, because the first four Beatitudes have to do with our relationship with God, who we are in his presence. This is where we learn and, this, and where we are reminded of what true blessedness is. We all know that so often we're looking for blessedness in all kinds of things. We try a thousand different ways to fill up that space. But hopefully as we go farther and farther, we are discovering that everything pales into comparison to the blessings here. Oh, I don't mean to say we won't ever try to fill them again with other things, but nothing is going to satisfy but what we are taught here. The first beatitude is our plumb line. Blessed are the poor in spirit. This is the place from where everything else in the whole sermon, actually in the whole of life, is to be measured. You can't have an understanding of what Jesus is teaching if you do not begin here. Nothing will be straight if you do not begin here. We are called back to this beatitude over and over and over, this first beatitude. And that will continue to be true through all of our study and through all of our lives. We are called blessed 
for being poor in spirit. That means we are blessed for being empty and coming to Jesus. It means we are blessed for being poor and coming to him for riches. We are blessed for being wretched and coming to him to be made a child of God. Jesus tells us that these things are good for us. These things are what truly is blessedness. And he says, if we have this beatitude as our plumb line, then ours is the kingdom of heaven forever. It is from this beatitude that everything else naturally falls into its place. For the next beatitude shows us what we, what, um, we encounter with Jesus, um, shows us what that encounter, sorry, it shows us what that encounter with Jesus does. We find ourselves on our knees. We have seen ourselves as we are and we are undone and we mourn our rebellion We mourn loving the wrong things. We mourn not loving Jesus. We mourn not loving one another. Mourning and repentance are the same thing. It isn't a ritual. It's a deep, real sorrow that can only be comforted by Jesus. We find that mourning our sin is healing. Our sin no longer defines us when we mourn before Jesus because We are no longer imprisoned in our sin because in him there is therefore now no condemnation. And so when we mourn, we begin to be reminded that we are free in his grace because there is no sin so horrible that his grace is not greater still. And the next beatitude, we find blessing in being meek. Meekness is something that the world despises, But this characteristic is now fits our lives. We understand it. We find it beautiful. We find it freeing because we don't pretend to be who we are not. We do not pretend before others, and we do not pretend to ourselves. We are learning to be honest. We are learning to be patient. We are not devastated when others say to us things that are true about us. We do not hold ourselves up because we have seen who we are without Jesus and we know the gift of infinite grace we have received, which drives us then that we are hungering and thirsting for righteousness. Our soul thirsts for more of God, more time with him, more understanding of him, thirsting to be more of who we are meant to be in him. And Jesus lets us know, and this is such a wonderful promise, that more and more we will be fed. More and more our thirst will be quenched. And a day is coming when we will be eternally satisfied, for we will be with him forever. That is who we are before God. And then we come to the second group of the four Beatitudes, which focus on our relationships to one another. These are the ones we have face-to-face all the time. We are still before the face of God, but now we come to those who are our brothers and sisters, those who are in the world. And we are told we are blessed if we are merciful. And we are reminded that we have received mercy beyond telling. 
And that is a cycle that must continue over and over if we are to have healing relationships. Mercy which I receive every moment and mercy which I freely am called to give to you and to give to anyone whom I meet. I don't try to bring you down. I try to lift you up. True mercy of forgiving wrongs quickly. We must not harbor things in our minds because they grow there. And because I understand what it means for an unbeliever to be without Jesus, I can have patience and mercy towards them. And as I grow more deeply aware of the mercy in my life that is ever pouring into my heart, it needs to make me more merciful. And that leads us into longing to have a pure heart. Because deeply and actually, we are longing for a pure heart. We are longing that there would be in us no mixture of sin. That there would be no lack of love. My friends, we are to fight for that. When we think unkind thoughts, when we want someone else to have justice because they've wronged us, but we don't want justice for ourselves. When we don't love what God loves, there are those things and a million more in our hearts that must die. I can't let those things grow in my mind and heart. I can't feed them, not if I want a pure heart. Not if I want to love with God's love. It will never happen in this life, of course. But it can begin. I can grow toward it. I must. But there is a promise that someday we will have it. And the blessing that comes from that is we shall see God. Which drives us to long to be peacemakers, to be like our Lord who has brought to us peace with God. Let us always seek peace rather than stirring up discord or division by gossip, by dividing people. Have you ever done that? It happens all the time. It happens in this church. It happens in our homes. It happens in all of our relationships. Let us not be that way. Jesus calls us to a higher place. He is calling us to be what he has been to us. You see, he brought peace between our God and ourselves. We are to have a heart like his. We are to have a heart that brings peace in relationships. And you see, there is a great thing about this, too. We are to have a heart like his with unbelievers because peacemaking includes spreading the gospel. That is the deepest form of peacemaking telling others about Jesus. It's my great struggle. I need to tell people, how can I not, who he is and what he has done for me? One important truth about this idea of being a peacemaker is the idea of going forth into the world, loving our neighbors. And it is a reminder to me that the church is not meant to be an enclave. It is meant to be a place of refueling 
It is a place to have our wounds treated. It is a place to be fed. But it's so easy to want to pull up the drawbridge and just stay here with people who love Jesus. But you see, that is not what a peacemaker does. Finally, the last beatitude that flows right on the heels of being a peacemaker is surprising. Not what we would expect, for we are told that the last blessing is that we will be persecuted for righteousness. Why is it a blessing to be persecuted for righteousness? Because yours is the kingdom of heaven. Does that make sense? Well, Jesus knows we probably struggle a little bit with that. I mean, shouldn't I be blessed for this? And he explains it. He says, blessed are you when people insult you, when people persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. See what Jesus is saying? He is saying our persecution is because we love him. In some way, we are suffering for him. One commentator explains it this way. He says, there will always be a clash because we have two irreconcilable value systems. There is the world and there is the kingdom of heaven. One can expect nothing different, and I think if we look at our world today, we can see this as a growing reality, but it will not always be so, because again, we are reminded, ours is the kingdom of heaven, and this means that in the midst of this, we will be salt and light as we live out the blessings of these beatitudes. Well, there we are. That is the picture of life. As a faithful Christian, that is our reality. That is our reality. That is our reality. You see, we have to keep feeding that into our hearts and asking the Spirit to change our hearts. That's a picture of life as a faithful Christian. That must be our reality. But you can see why we must always return to the plumb line to being poor of spirit, because it is our guiding star. Without that beatitude, as one commentator writes, no one will enter the kingdom of heaven. This is where everything changes. This is where the clouds roll back. This is our rest, resting place. This is the place where Jesus says, you are mine now and forever, and no one will ever snatch you out of my hands. You see, that is what this pass, the passage from last week essentially means when Christina talked about it, where Jesus says, do not think I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not, Iowa, not, Beth, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Jesus came to fill up the law to overflowing. Not just the letter, but the spirit, to accomplish it in its fullest extent and more. And actually, my friends, Jesus is going to show us what fulfillment means in light of the kingdom he has brought forth. is a call to a righteousness that is more demanding than any legal system can ever be. You see, our relationship is with God, and it's not with the law per se. 
It is a deeper call that Jesus is making, a deeper demand upon what true righteousness is. And Jesus is, is beginning to show us that that is a righteousness of the heart. It is not written outside of us. It's what is happening inside of us. It is, a, in fact, however, a righteousness that is beyond what I can ever attain to in this life. So we come face to face with the righteousness Jesus is talking about. And we are left breathless because we know we'll never be there. And that is, what is what, where we are meant to be because we are face to face with a righteousness that is not in and of ourselves. Paul writes this in Philippians 3, 8, and 9. In order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. It is a deeper righteousness than the law ever demands of us. It's a beautiful passage. Remember, Paul was a Pharisee of Pharisees. He thought he was keeping the law to the nth degree. And here we find that he has come to the end of seeking his own righteousness. He is clinging to Jesus. That's what we are called to do. Rosemarie Millers writes, she says, there is a righteousness untarnished by anything I could ever do to it. And it is mine and Jesus. That is where we are in the Beatitudes when we are poor in spirit. When we are at the end of seeking our own righteousness and we are looking to Jesus and what are we promised? Again, we say, the kingdom of heaven. And yet, Jesus continues to call us to a higher and higher experience of righteousness. He calls us to a radical righteousness. That's the second part of what Christina talked about last week. He calls us because he has made us able to more and more go deeper into that righteousness. He is making us into who we are in him. There is no way we could ever, ever, ever save ourselves. We could not keep the demands of the law that was necessary for our salvation. I wish I could had time to go through, if you read some of the commentaries, they go through all of the different aspects of the law that Jesus fulfilled in a way that was beyond understanding. He, he fulfilled them in a way that far outreached the law's demand. If he had not, we would be without hope. But the beautiful truth is we have been saved by that alien righteousness, and yet do you think that he will leave us in our sin, that we just can live here just any way we want? No, that is what the seven remaining Beatitudes shows us. That's what the rest of the sermon will show us. We are being changed by running to him, and he has brought to us a new birth, and he has given us a new heart through the indwelling of the Spirit. And he calls us to live as new creations. He is removing the heart of stone. We needed a new heart because change always happens in relation to our hearts. The Pharisees organized the keeping of the law in a way that bypassed the heart. Jesus would have none of it. That is why our righteousness must exceed the righteousness of the Pharisees. And so finally, in closing, we come quickly to our lesson for today. 
just to touch on it. Jesus begins by saying, you have heard that it was said of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But you see, that's not where he wants us to stop. Jesus is talking about the deepest things of the heart that might lead to murder. Anger, insults, calling someone a fool. You see what he's teaching his beatitude children. His call to not murder is the only the outside layer of who we are meant to be. Not murdering is pretty easy in and of itself. That's why the Pharisees thought that they had that all in hand. They didn't grasp an iota of what was in their hearts. Jesus is calling us ever deeper into what lies behind the law, don't murder. Jesus is saying, do you understand loving your neighbor indeed means that, that you don't murder, but it also means don't gossip, don't belittle, don't humiliate. Those things assassinate someone's character. Don't call someone a fool. That is to disdain them. Don't hate them. That is to want them dead. My friends, we, we don't even know the beginning of what is in our hearts. Our call is not just to not murder. Our call by Jesus is to go far beyond that. We are to go to the far side of love. So, in closing, let me just say this. Again, a picture from Rosemary Miller. She said this, and this is a paraphrase. She said all of her life she had lived trying to control everything around her trying to control her circumstances, trying to control how she reacted to things. She said it was like living in a canal. She knew where the sides were. She knew where it would always be pretty calm in that canal. She knew where it began and where it ended. But she said when the gospel of Jesus grabbed hold of her and he said, you are mine, she was free. He sent her out into the ocean where there were hurricanes and days and days without a safe harbor. But she said she knew finally the greatest freedom because she knew what Jesus was calling her to do was to trust him and run to him and he would make her who he always meant to do. And hers was the kingdom of heaven. Let's pray. Father, these things are too beautiful to even get our minds around, but they are true. And they are ours because we belong to Jesus. Will you enlarge this new heart in us and will you set us free? into the ocean that we might be your people and put all of our trust and hope in you. In Christ's name, amen.